0: Uh, 19 through 24. Uh, Please follow along as I uh, read our passage this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. "'By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything.' Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because He keeps His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Let's pray. Father, Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time together this morning to gather as Your people. We pray now as we consider Your truth, our confidence before You, based in who You are and Your activity in our lives, that You would incline our hearts, open our eyes, give us understanding, and please satisfy us with Your Word and with Your promises. We love You, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray together. Amen. Well, if you've been with us at all during the series, hopefully you remember, but I, I do think it's important for us to uh, continue to restate this, that John's aim in this letter is to provide a basis for our confidence in our fellowship or in our communion with our God. Uh, that's why we titled this series Confidence, Letters of John. He wants us to be able to relate to God confidently. He wants us to approach God confidently. He wants us to have access to God confidently. He wants us to have confidence like Tom Brady does every time he gets on a football field, especially in a Super Bowl. He knows he's going to win. We know he's going to win because he's the GOAT. That's the kind of confidence that John wants us to have um, coming out of reading, studying, meditating on the truths in this letter. He, he wants us to have the type of, of confidence that Adam Brago has when he goes into a specialty sandwich shop and orders at the counter. He doesn't want you to shrink back like I do when I order a sandwich at a specialty sandwich shop. A couple of weeks ago, we went to a place and um, we go to this, this sandwich shop downtown and you get in there and like there's all these special ingredients. They make the sandwiches as they are, but I'm the world's pickiest eater. So I get up to the counter and I don't want like Swiss cheese. I hate Swiss cheese. I want provolone cheese and mushrooms. Why would you put mushrooms on a sandwich? So I, so I basically like reorder the sandwich, but I do it sheepishly. And in this restaurant, um, they have a picture of Seinfeld soup Nazi, you know, no soup for you, like looking right there. And so, so I do it. I feel bad about it. Not bad enough to, to order the sandwich as it is, but nonetheless I feel less confident at the counter than my friend Adam Brego who goes up there and he's just like, I want that sandwich, and uh, it's over, done with. That's the kind of confidence that God wants us to have as His children, as His people when we approach Him. And so John's saying in this letter that um, there's some evidences, there are these um, marks, if you will, to uh, ground that confidence, to ground that assurance that we are the Lord's children. And so, he's going to circle back um, like a spiral staircase a few times on each of these, we can call them tests. Now, there's a few different ways to name them, but you have the doctrine text, which is the belief in Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, The second test we see throughout this letter, you could call the social test, love for one another, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then thirdly, what would be called the moral test, obedience to God, seeing Him as Lord and Savior. And what he's saying is that, that, um, you know, our love for one another, our obedience to Him, that's not what, what saves us, no, this is a, an overflow. This is evidence. It's, it's showing, it's proving that we are truly in Christ. Like a, like a cup, you have a pitcher of water and you just pour it there and then the cup fills up, you're still pouring water, and then it starts overflowing, our love for one another overflows out of this change of heart or our reconciled relationship to God, our, our obedience to God and His commands as a, as a characteristic, as a trademark of our lives, is an overflow of our new life in Christ. Now, John's writing uh, to these, these people in this early church where they have these false teachers who are presenting and preaching a Christ that is different than the Scriptures reveal, who God has revealed, different than um, Jesus, the Son of God. They were denying His humanity. He's writing to a church where uh, there was this, this sect within this early church that um, were separating from fellowship with these other believers, and they were not loving um, the other brothers and sisters. Uh, this was, there was a group of false teachers that were saying, it doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter what you do. God's grace covers it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Have at it, and John's writing to correct these, um, these false understandings and these misconceptions. And uh, John's, in essence, at times saying, I mean, they may not even be one of you based on the, this activity in their life. Now, all of that is by way of reminder and to tee up this, this idea that, that God wants us to have confidence in our fellowship with Him based on His activity in our lives and based on, more importantly, who He is. Now, you look at verse 19 of our um, short paragraph this morning, and he starts with these two words, by this. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him. By this we shall know. By this we shall be confident. By this we shall rest assured. Well, what's the by this? How can we be rest assured? Well, the by this is referring to what Jordan taught about last week. Uh, And you see it, I'll just read it again, verses 16 through 18. Jordan taught on a, a longer passage, but this, in essence, uh, gets after it. He says in 1 John three sixteen, "...by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." says, how do we know love? Well, we see God's love demonstrated in Jesus' sacrificial death, him being the propitiation, him being the substitute, bearing the wrath wrath of God in our place. And likewise, we, as his followers, should also lay down our lives. No, not in the same way. We're not dying for the sins of the world, but we should gladly, joyfully, energetically expend ourselves for the good and for the building up of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Gives a scenario where you have a a, a professing Christian who sees a brother or sister in Christ in need. Now this is, he's marking a brother in need Yes, we should love our neighbors, but here he's talking about other people who are followers of Christ. You see their need, and if you can meet that need, if you have the world's good and can meet that need and then don't do it, how can you say that you actually are a follower of Christ? How can you say that the love of God dwells in you when you withhold from your brother and sister? And then he concludes in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or, or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we're going to talk the talk, I love God. I pursue God. I'm a follower of Christ. We need to, cheesily said, walk the walk. We need to demonstrate that love. Or he's he's articulating the social test. He says, so by this, how you love others, how God's activity in your life overflows in demonstration of love, meeting others' needs, stewardship of life for other brothers and sisters. That's how you know. That's how you can gain confidence. Rest assured that you are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before Him. Then look at verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. There's going to be times when our heart will need reassurance, that um, this serene assurance at times can be disturbed, and we shouldn't be thrown off by those moments where um, our heart condemns us. We shouldn't be thrown off when some of that reassurance is troubled. It's, it's not an infrequent experience for the Christian. Now, some are going to struggle with this more than others Uh, based on their personality, their disposition, their history, their experiences, their circumstances, and because of some of their own actions and some of their own decisions and behaviors and patterns in their life. But nonetheless, we shouldn't be thrown when our serene assurance is disturbed or prodded. And what John is getting at is he's saying there will be times where that happens. And this, our heart or our conscience will um, accuse us. Now, sometimes those accusations will be right, and we need to be quick to confess those sins. We need to be quick to repent of it. But other times, those accusations will be false. And that inner voice, the conscience, the heart, should not be, nor is it intended to be, the final arbiter or the supreme court, if you will, but rather it is God. God is the one who filters all of that, that inner voice, the conscience, the heart. We take those accusations and then we um, run that up against God and what He says and who He is. For He's greater than our hearts and He knows everything. John Stott, I think, helpfully describes what's going on in verse 20 like this. I quote, There are then three actors in this spiritual drama, three speakers in this inward debate. It is a kind of trial with our heart as the accuser, ourselves as the defendant, and God as the judge. Whenever our hearts condemn us, we ourselves who are distinct from our hearts and stand, as it were, outside it, must set it to rest or reassure and pacify its misgivings. So you have this, this accusing heart, this condemning heart. And we, the defendants, stand apart from it. And how do we evaluate whether the accusations are conviction from the Lord that we need to confess and repent of, or that we need to preach truth against it. Well, the way that we discern that, the way that we evaluate that, the way that we make those determinations is by looking to God and His Word and His promises, because He's greater than than our heart. And He knows everything. He knows what's going on in our heart. He knows its proclivities. He knows the, the dark, wicked recesses of your heart in ways that, that you aren't even aware of. And at times, our heart will be less merciful to us than God is or will be. And so that's why, I mean, in this, in this culture, in this day and age, especially for the church, I mean, this is, this is an important concept for us to grasp. We're in a day and age where uh, feelings and our hearts and our opinions and our passions and our own versions of truth rule the day. And this passage is saying that those feelings, that inner voice, those passions, your version of truth, should not have the final word. It only has authority to the degree in which it lines up to God and His words and who He is and His promises. For God is greater than our hearts. And so we need to take that inner voice, we need to take those feelings, we need to take those passions, and rather than listen to our versions of truth, we need to line it up against what Francis Schaeffer calls true truth. We take the subjective, and we allow the objective truth, the unchanging truth of God and His Word to filter it, determine it make final judgments on whether those instincts, those feelings, the inner voice, should be trusted or not. Now, feelings are important. We're to love the Lord our God with all of those feelings and all those affections. I'm, I'm team feelings. But wisdom, maturity, and the Scriptures would say that though they're very important, they're very dangerous leaders. And we as the people of God, as a mark should ultimately, or with finality, be led by God and His Word. Not that inner voice, not the shifting emotions of our heart informed by our culture. But we shouldn't ignore, you know, that inner voice, that, that conscience. We shouldn't ignore it at all because sometimes it, it could be the Lord convicting us. So we don't just pretend it's not there. um, um Back when I was in seminary, uh, I went to seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, or as they say in Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. And um, I was pastoring, I was on staff um, pastoring at a church in Florida, Naples, Florida. And what I would do is I would fly up a few times a year and take these J term classes. Uh, So I'd be there a week or two at a clip. And uh, I did that for, I think, three or four years. And uh, there was this wonderful couple, Irv and Brenda, who lived in Louisville. And uh, we're snowbirds, so they, uh, they went to the church in Florida that I was at for five, six months out of the year, uh, like around this time of year. They'd be in Florida because they're smart. And um, they heard that I was going to seminary. Me and another pastor were doing this, this J-term thing. And so they graciously and generously opened up their home where me and my friend Jared could stay there and we, we would go there. I mean, they'd pick us up from the airport. They'd take us to a nice dinner um, and they'd open up their home for sometimes two weeks. They'd let us borrow their car so we could drive it to the campus. I mean, they were, we were just extraordinarily blessed by this, this just wonderful older couple. And uh, when we were driving their car, I can't remember the make and model of the car, but uh, Irv had this this sticker or this portion of a note card that was taped um, to the front of the, um, like the dashboard. And uh, one time I got a peek behind this, this sticker and I noticed that the check engine light or the maintenance required light was on. So I asked him about it and he said, oh yeah, that thing always comes on. I just put it there because it annoys me. Now, it's, I mean, you do you, brother. Like, it's your car. I'm just, um, I'm a recipient of your generosity. So I left it at that. Uh, but I thought it was so funny that he just, he just covered it up. He, he didn't deal with it. And maybe for a good reason. But I think oftentimes, you know, when we, when we feel our conscience pricking us or, or when we feel um, uh, some condemnation or accusation, uh, in no way is this passage of the Lord encouraging us to, to tape over that uh, like Irv did on the dashboard of his car. No, we should, we should hear it and we should deal with it, but we should deal with it rightly, lest if we ignore it, and it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, um, then we miss the opportunity to confess, repent, turn back from God. But there are going to be times where um, those heart's accusations are wrong, and they're not filled with truth. And it's in those situations where we need to preach God's truth to ourselves. This is why it's so incumbent for the maturing follower of Christ to know God's Word, to have unhurried relational time with God. I mean, unhurried, just to allow the Spirit of God to speak to us through the Word of God, to allow the Word of God to read us, and to work with, be in relationship with, fellowship with other believers, so that God can also speak to us through the people of God. Uh, That's why uh, corporate worship, prayer, discipleship, uh, things like that, these ordinary means of grace are so important to fill our lives with these things that we may properly evaluate in these moments where our hearts accuse us so that we can weigh it against who God is and what God says. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I couldn't help but think of this it's like a paragraph or two, but uh, this statement about the importance of preaching to ourselves and how we, we have to be saturated in God's Word to be able to do this rightly. And he contrasts that worth, uh, versus this, this inner voice that speaks to us, and how do we um, compare that to who God is and what God says about us. Uh, Lloyd-Jones writes this, The main trouble in this whole matter, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself? This is the very essence of wisdom in this matter. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, the man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asked. His soul has been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself, and defy the devil, and defy the whole world, and say with the man, Psalm 42, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance, and my God. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. And then John's going to transition in verse 21 and talk about some of the blessings that come with a heart that is uncondemning. He says in verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. God. So when we've either confessed our sin, repented of it, turned to God who's, who's greater than our hearts, or, or we've acknowledged that what ourself is telling us is a lie, it's not true, God's promises overrule it, supersede it, then we have this, this uncondemning heart. And one of the blessings of an uncondemned heart, uh, uncondemning heart is confidence before God. And one of the benefits of an untroubled conscience is that its result, a communion or fellowship with God, it's, our, our communion our fellowship is unrestricted on the one hand, and we're free to actively seek after Him in the other. It gives us the confidence to approach God. And remember, that's John's aim. He, he wants to encourage us to have confidence. He wants us to have confidence in our pursuit of Him, like my nine-year-old daughter has confidence to pursue me and asking me to buy a horse. She asks every day. She's undeterred by it. And when I bring that up, I know Jordan Cinziana will say, well, she's asking for a horse because you got her a dog. And Jordan would be right. That is why she's asking. And the reason she asked for a dog is because I bought her a goldfish when she was four. And a goldfish is a gateway pet. That's the type of confidence that John is getting at, and one of the blessings of an uncondemning heart is to pursue the Lord and seek the Lord with unentered fellowship. He continues then in verse 22 and talks about another blessing, another benefit is answered prayer, verse 22, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Now John's not espousing the name in a claimant he's not saying that you know the um the uncondemning heart, if you, if you have a clear conscience, then all of a sudden you get whatever you want. No, he's, he's implying here, and we know, like this hermeneutical principle, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. We know from the Scriptures that, um, yes, we, we do get this answered prayer, but it's this picture of us being transformed, maturing, and conforming to the image of Christ. And as we mature, as we conform to the image of Christ, the more and more our prayers line up with who God is, the more we mature, the, the less we are, our prayers are focused on ourselves and they, they start being directed towards others. The more me, we mature, the less we are concerned with material prosperity and daily convenience and more concerned about the Lord, His purposes, His ways, and His activity both in our midst and in the world. And we know this from life. I mean, when I was a teenager, all I thought about was pizza and video games. Now as an adult, all I think about is pizza and my family. You know, the, the video games family thing has has changed. It's matured. The pizza part hasn't. And that's what he's saying here is that, that as we um, continue to pursue the Lord with an uncondemning heart, we, as a result of that, continue to be transformed by it. And then the last two verses, he then continues to reiterate those those three evidences, those three marks, or the three tests that I was talking about earlier. Look at verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. And interestingly enough, fundamentally, there's only one command. It says this is his Commandment, you know, belief in the name of the Son Jesus Christ and loving one another could—they're all kind of wrapped up together like a Schneider's pretzel, you know—it's just one and the same in many ways. When he says, "Believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ," you know, believe, have faith in, trust in the name, the revealed person of His Son Jesus Christ. I mean, this is the historical person of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Son of God. This is the Jesus that the false teachers at this time were denying. This, this is the Jesus that many in our culture who may in name be Christians but are uh, not promulgating this Jesus. They're promulgating uh, some other version of Jesus. A Jesus made in their own image. A Jesus that is full of grace but absent of truth. Or, or their uh, Jesus is your homeboy Jesus. Or Action figure Jesus or any version of Jesus, but this is saying believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, with all its, with, with all its punch. We've confessed our sins. We know that Jesus, fully and completely God, fully and completely man, fully and completely united in one person, lived a perfectly sinless life, obeyed the commands that we could not, died on a cross. For all who trust in him are reconciled to the Father and get Jesus' righteousness and eternal life and life to the full. That's the Jesus that he's talking about. And as we believe in that, trust in that with our hearts, our hearts are transformed in such a way where then it results in, this this one-time belief results in this continuous attitude and actions or an overflow of loving others. See previously what we've talked about in 1 John and what we're gonna continue to talk about in the next handful of weeks. And he ends on this note, verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Well, here we see uh, this concept of what many commentators call a, a mutual abiding God in us, and us in God. This mutual abiding. Uh, John Stott, once again, he points out and says that this is derived from John 15, the vine and the branches. Both here and in John 15, there's this condition for mutual, continuous indwelling. What that condition is, is obedience. And while that's the condition... For abiding in God. It is also the evidence for indwelling. So the evidence, the mark, is also the condition and so that so so intertwined that it can be evidence of an overflow of God's activity, the fruit of the Spirit, as well as a command that we are to submit to the Lord and obey him, recognizing that it is our joy at stake when we rebel against him and do not conform our ways, our actions, our walking, our attitudes to what he has called us to. Stock continues, he says, So John has been saying that no one may dare to claim that he lives in Christ and Christ in him unless he is obedient to the three fundamental commands which John has been expounding. Belief in Christ, love for our brothers and sisters, and moral righteousness. Our walk with Christ... Is not this mystical experience which anyone may claim. It's a really important sentence. I'll read it again. Our walk with Christ is not this mystical experience which anyone may claim. It's indispensable accompaniments. It's indispensable accompaniments. Its companions are confession of Jesus as the Son of God, come in the flesh, and consistent with the life of love. And a life of holiness. Who made the gospel message seem sweet, wonderful, precious, and life giving to you? Spirit of God. Who enables and empowers you to live faithful lives of worship, obeying Him, loving others? Spirit of God. The Spirit of God in our lives, the the seal of God's promises to us. It's, It's objectively, the Spirit's activity is objectively manifested in our lives. And so we begin, because of the Spirit's activity, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, and with our will, with our actions. And it's both the the evidence of as well as a call for us to obey in those areas. Once again, brothers and sisters, God wants us to have confidence as we approach Him. He doesn't want us to have false assurance. He doesn't want us to have misplaced confidence. But He wants us to have confidence. And that confidence is rooted in who God is and what God has accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And his activity in our lives is accompanied by love for others and obedience to God and his will. He wants us to have a vibrant, growing, active, life-giving, joy-filled relationship with him, relationship with other brothers or sisters that we might display the manifold wisdom of God to the world, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you and we rejoice that you are greater than our hearts. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment through your word, through your spirit. Using your other people, other Christians in our lives, that we may know when we need to hear that inner voice and confess and repent, and when we need to preach truth to ourselves, preach God's promises to ourselves. We thank you that you're greater than our hearts. We thank you that you know everything. And we thank you for the blessings that come from an uncondemning heart confidence before you and answered prayer. May we be a people in this church marked by these things that the world may know the love of God in Jesus Christ. We love you, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.